Today's podcast is sponsored by Western Reformed Seminary. Visit wrs.edu and listen for more at the conclusion of today's podcast. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. So often, Old Testament authors want to present new revelation of God, but in light of what God has revealed in the past. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master and I am here with a special New Year's message for all of our listeners. As James and I were talking about the past year and about the interviews that we enjoyed the most, we always love our guests, and so we don't uh, want to minimize any of the interviews or, or or the time that they gave us. But one in particular uh, rose to the top in our thinking, and that was the one that we conducted, a two-part interview that we conducted with our friend, uh, Dr. Gary Snicker. Uh, Gary was responsible for a, a significant book this year. It's called The Old Testament Use of the Old Testament, published by our friends at Zondervan. And as James and I were talking, we realized that not only was that among our favorite interviews from the past year, it was also among our favorite books published this past year. So for the first time ever, we are uh, giving to you a book of the year from Theology on the Go. And our book of the year for 2021 is Old Testament Use of the Old Testament by Dr. Gary Snicker. And in honor of that, we're going to be replaying at the beginning of this year that two-part interview that we had with Gary uh, several months ago. So we hope you'll enjoy it, and we hope you'll stay till the end because our friends at Zondervan have given us new books that we can give away to our listeners. So I hope you enjoy this, and Happy New Year. We're looking forward to this conversation. I know you and I have talked off the air about this uh, for a little while. We were looking forward to it uh, because of a new book that has just been launched by our good friend, Gary Snicker. Gary is a former colleague of ours at Cairn University. He's professor of Old Testament at the School of Divinity at Cairn University. He's been there for a number of years, and he has published several very helpful volumes, but this is uh, what would appear at first glance to be kind of a reference book called Old Testament use of Old Testament. And we want to spend some time in the next two episodes talking to Gary about this book. So, Gary, thanks for joining us today. Uh, It's a pleasure. Um, Thank you very much for having me, James and Jonathan. Well, it's a pleasure for us, too. And I want to begin by just asking you to give us and our listeners maybe a I don't know, a paragraph overview of what to expect from this book. It's a book-by-book guide, Old Testament use of Old Testament. We're used to hearing about the New Testament's use of the Old Testament, so some listeners will have that as a frame of reference, but maybe explain a little bit about what you're trying to do in this volume. Yeah, so, I mean, the area of the New Testament use of the Old has um, really made a lot of progress and has accomplished a lot. But one of the things that's interesting is more and more um, scholars that are into this talk about how weird some of the New Testament uses the old are. But that's really a modern imposition because it's only weird if we don't study the Old Testament because the New Testament authors, by all evidence, um, are modeling their interpretation based on how later Old Testament authors interpreted earlier Old Testament authors. So this book is really meant to um, 
expand this sense of continuity. So it definitely is in fraternity with the study of the New Testament use of the old, but it doesn't begin with the, the New Testament authors. Rather, we find that from the beginning, Old Testament authors are deeply invested in studying earlier scriptures. And so, you know, God, God reveals his will in, in many different ways and at many times, but one of those is through um, the exegesis of scripture itself. So we find that so often Old Testament authors want to present new revelation of God, but in light of what God has revealed in the past. So this book is designed to help students, to help ministers, to kind of make the connections and to, I guess you could say, to think with the Old Testament authors as they are studying the scriptures themselves as they present new teachings. Gary, I wonder if we could dial back a little bit. Early in the volume, when you're introducing it, you speak about the importance of uh, the progress of redemption and progressive revelation. And I, I think e even just as it's built into the names old and new, it's easy to see uh, the idea of progress there. I wonder if you could speak a little bit to the idea of progress within the Old Testament canon and narrative of redemption itself, because there's a sense in which prophets or later prophets are appropriating the texts and the scrolls uh, that are already uh, available to them. And maybe some are even appropriating scriptures written by near almost contemporaries, uh, so that sometimes the distance between a source text uh, and its interpretation is, is in fact very close. So I wonder if you could speak to the idea of the progress within the Old Testament itself, so that there is this kind of trajectory, right? But when you get to the New Testament, this thing is already happening, the appropriation of earlier texts to the, to the progress yeah, of so, redemption. I mean, that's, that's, that's an excellent point, James. I mean, the, the progressive revelation is sort of a shorthand for the progressive revelation of God's redemptive will. And maybe another way that we sometimes say that is the gospel. Um, so, yeah, I think what I want to do at the same time as being helpful to uh, students and ministers of the word is that I think when we dig in, like you're saying, a lot of times it's a little bit messier than we might think because the triggers for exegetical advances of God's revelation tend to be both internal from the scriptures themselves, but also external. And, you know, the Old Testament's written across a long period of time, and Israel has messy lives, whether they go from being wanderers to invaders to um, exiles to sort of these impoverished um, uh, dwellers in their ancestors' homeland trying to rebuild a shrine. So we find that that there's not some kind of steady, uh, systematic unfolding of God's revelatory will, but a lot of times these external crises are the triggers where there's massive reinterpretation of previous revelation. So the exile, for example, uh, James, um, as you know, is going to just throw um, Israel into just a profound struggle with what the forever promises to Abraham and David could possibly mean in light of no king on the throne. So these are moments of profound searching of the scriptures and reinterpreting the scriptures. And we don't find any sort of throwing up of the hands of the later prophets. We find them doubling down 
and they again and again turn to Torah. They turn to the earliest prophets, and they are finding new ways to understand what God was promising and how Israel's failed the covenant. And none of this is due to the failure of the earlier text. Uh, it's just simply that they need, now need to make an application of those texts to an unexpected situation. That's, I think that's part of it. Those are those external crises. But I mean, it's even, you know, we can push this all the way back to Torah itself. It's not something that just comes up, you know, in these late crises. You know, at the very first Passover, some people come to Moses because they had to bury someone in their family. So they're ritually impure. And they said, why can't we participate in the Passover um, just because we had to bury somebody? And the Lord says, you know, that's a really good point. Tell you what, um, you can have the Passover on the 14th of the second month. And anybody who's traveling during Passover can participate then as well. So we find that the, that's in Numbers 9. So we find that the tweaking or the revisions even of something like God's proclaimed law, it begins with the Lord himself. That, in other words, relationship doesn't serve law. In Torah, law serves the relationship with God. So the covenant is what is um, more the supreme thing. And so the Lord was willing to repeatedly adjust laws to serve his redemptive relationship with his people. Gary, I want to touch on that point in a minute, but I had a, a comment to make about what you had said earlier. Um, you talked about it in terms of messiness, and I understand why you use that language because you're talking about the circumstances that they're in, and it's not a it's not a clean trajectory, a forward progress, or anything like that. It's 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 much more complex than that because of their sin, the sin of the people. But but on the other hand, there's a sense in which in reading the work you've done and observing some of these connections, it also, as you said, helps us understand why we can double down on on the interpretation and application of God's Word. So no matter how messy the circumstances seemed, at one level you could look at it as messy, but on the other hand, there's this overwhelming confidence in the minds of the prophets, in the Word of God and the applicability of the Word of God. It never loses its power. It never loses its force. It is never unable to be applied to the people's situation. So, you know, on the one hand, messiness, but on the other hand, I, 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 there's a sense of stability, the stability and, the, and the, the sufficiency at all times of God's Word for His people. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that, Jonathan. I mean, that's, that's really the point is we don't find any sense of prophets as innovators and doing unprecedented things. They're forever being conservative and looking back and trying to understand God's will in light of how reality is unfolding. I think probably the two things that helped um, kind of come to this book and sort of frame things in a new way two observations. I mean, I'd long been interested in the Bible's use of the Bible. I mean, that's something that's just really fascinating for all the reasons James brought up. I mean, here we have, it's, it's the enduring Word of God. How can you mess around with it? I mean, so there's that. But I think the two observations that um, didn't hit me until later years were um, the framework of progressive revelation to understand that it's not just happening in this little isolated thing where, you know, there's interesting things to interpret, uh, but rather there's a, 
a sense of connection and there's confidence in what God has spoken of old. And the people are trying to um, make sense of, of what's going on. And I think the second thing in, in this area of study is to focus on each book of the Old Testament or each scroll. And so there's a sense in which it's right to make generalizations like, here's what the prophets are doing. Here's what the story makers are doing. Here's what the uh, psalmists are doing. Here's what the legal materials are doing. But I think that we even need to drill down more than that and go book by book sometimes and see um, the particular tendencies of each author. And this really kind of gives some help to students, to ministers, to, to, to make sense and to walk with uh, the authors of the Old Testament. Gary, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about some of the challenges. Um, this is getting, let's get down a little bit into the nitty gritty now. Um, some of the challenges of writing um, what is, a, by all accounts, a very large volume. Um, I'm sure as the author working many years, you omitted so much material. And I see that even sometimes you mention this, you say, I can't discuss this here, you know, see this work. And so it's really a, a reference to further study. Um, but even still, there are challenges, um, and I want to talk about a couple of them. The first one with regard to priority and sourcehood in terms of which text is using which um, and which one has the priority, and how does that impinge upon the um, exegesis of scripture? How do we handle, why does it matter that we identify priority? Maybe sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it matters more, sometimes less, I suppose. But what is that challenge in identifying priority? Well, I think, James, that that's not um, a challenge at all from the perspective of the New Testament use right. of the old. Right. From that perspective, the New Testament authors accept the authority of the scriptures and they can read, you know, remote parts together and they do. But that same idea of reading one text in the light of another, that also happens with Old Testament authors. That interpretive blending is what we call it. The New Testament authors didn't invent that. They're actually following the lead of uh, a well-trod path by Old Testament authors. Um, it is very difficult within the context of the Old Testament to um, make a lot of those decisions because the Old Testament is written over a long period of time, and there's later adjustments that are part of the authorized text, even in the Old Testament itself. So when we have, um, for example, in the book of Genesis, it goes so far as to talk about the kings of Israel in Genesis 36, or in the book of Deuteronomy, it looks back at some distance to the conquest of Canaan in Deuteronomy 2. So here we have these, right, this evidence in scripture, authorized evidence of a sort of a long germination. And so it's not always easy. Um, so sometimes we get help, but sometimes we have to actually really get close. So in many cases, I mentioned these interpretive blends where uh, um, a biblical author reads one text in the light of another. A good example is the interpretation of, we call it the divine attribute formula in Exodus 34. And Jonah reads that together with the sin of the golden calf, Moses's prayer and uh, his dialogue with the Lord in Exodus 32. So that sort of interpretive blend helps us triangulate, and then we can tell that Jonah is relying on Torah. And 
um, in the case of Joel 2 and his allusion to the same text, um, he has to be alluding to Jonah, not to Exodus, because he follows the quotation with some further language from Jonah that's not in Exodus, but he also is reading together the parts of Exodus exactly like Jonah is. So in that case, Jonah cannot be relying on Joel. He has to be relying on Exodus, and Joel has to be relying on jo Jonah. You really, so, you re I mean, the stratification then of interpretation is so much more than just simply one Old Testament author uses an earlier Old Testament text. By the time you get to some of the prophets or even the later prophets, you have older texts and scrolls, uh, and then the interpretation of a kind of middle, a middle interpreter like Jonah, um, who's already <laughs> kind of taken two texts, and then you have a third interpreter, uh, a third, a third installment with Joel appropriating an Old Testament interpretation of the Old. So you really have the Old Testament's use of the Old Testament's use of the Old. And what we need to remember, James, that's exactly right, is the more Old Testament authors interpreted a text, the more later Old Testament interpreters were attracted to those texts. I mean, so it's not like they exhausted the text, but it's almost like what we say. Every time I read the scriptures, I see something I didn't see before. There's this inexhaustibility to the texts and um, the favorite texts, that is the favorites of the um, biblical authors, wind up helping later authors just see how profound what God has revealed. Another way to get at this, James, though, there, there's other things, and some of this comes just down to uh, hard work. Um, so we have in Deuteronomy 10, it says, love the residing foreigner. And in Exodus 19, of course, it says, love the residing foreigner. And so, you know, it's been a long time thought of that um, the holiness material in Leviticus is later. But that, that really doesn't, the evidence doesn't support that idea here. So when we actually drill down to the evidence, um, we have the verb love and then the preposition la uh, uh, to mark the direct object, love the residing foreigner. But in Deuteronomy 10, we have uh, the definite direct object marker, accusative marker eight, love the residing foreigner. Well, no one would ever take a clear text like Deuteronomy 10 and make it ambiguous with ambiguous syntax like we have in Leviticus uh, 18, uh, 19. So here's a case where Deuteronomy is disambiguating the syntax of the text. So th that points very clearly to Leviticus 19 preceding Deuteronomy 10. And so that's some kind of nitty gritty that's not easy to kind of say at a Bible study on Wednesday night, but it's important for us as teachers and ministers of the word. We have to get our hands dirty at that level. That is fascinating. That is that that is fascinating. Um, that you're you're answering questions that have been out there for 150 years in the critical literature. Um, and uh, well, anyway, I'll I'll leave it to Jonathan. I know he has a question. <laughs> Well, no, I, I, I mean, I agree. And, and you all know this. We've had a lot of these conversations um, already. And, and I, I agree. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating to me, too. But I, I wanted to return to something you said earlier about texts that were used and reused and how uh, later prophets tended to return to some of the same 
major texts. And 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 look, just for a frame of reference here, we do the same thing today. I mean, we if you if you listen to any pastor for a length of time, if you listen to yourself as a teacher for any length of time, you know there are these passages you come back to that are profound and 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 sort of formative for your own um your own teaching. And so that that shouldn't come as a shock or a surprise and it and it's it's a wonderful thing and I think you're right to say it shows us the inexhaustibility of the scriptures. But now I want to say what are some of those texts? Because I I know from talking to you that some of the texts that we gravitate towards in the new in the Old Testament and that we kind of come back to over and over again aren't necessarily the texts that the Old Testament prophets come back to over and over again. So that serves as a really interesting corrective for us. What are those texts? Yeah, so I'll get you a question, but there's kind of something that, in, in the way you framed the question, I, I feel like I need to get at first, and I, I, I won't be long. The, the sense here of um, some of the things that bother us, Jonathan, like devoting the nations of Canaan to destruction, that bothers us. And so we, we, we really work on those. Well, that didn't just bother us, that bothered the earliest biblical authors. We find repeatedly the uh, authors of the narratives of um, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, we call it the Deuteronomistic narrative. Repeatedly, they're going back to that text to try to make sense of it. Before one Canaanite is killed, we find this story of um, Rahab, the whore, and her coming to faith, um, her expressing her faith. She was already apparently a follower of what's going on. And so we have, we have these problem passages that attracted um, ongoing interpretation, a lot of interpretation on the texts on devoting the nations of Canaan. But we also have passages that are very positive, the covenants, um, the blessing of Judah. So we find almost more than anything else, probably the Davidic covenant is one of those that we still study, we still argue about, but the arguments we're having uh, some of those were sort of missing what's going on in the Bible. Our concerns are a little different because, say, uh, with the Davidic covenant, we've talked about it being conditional or unconditional for as long as anybody can remember. But, you know, David never worried about that. For David himself in Samuel, in Kings, and in Chronicles, the covenant that God gave to him was irrevocable, and there were certainly obligations. It's a covenant. <laughs> Right. It's a covenant. And so he's not struggling with the same things we are, but uh, the importance of the Davidic covenant is hard to get past. Uh, the attribute formula I've already mentioned, the Ten Commandments. Uh, we talk about the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. This is a fertile place of investigation for the prophets. Uh, the New Covenant of Jeremiah is actually looking back at Deuteronomy 29 and um, Isaiah chapter 6. And this sort of continues, all these texts I've just mentioned, run into the New Testament. One that's a little surprising to us is the law of the assembly. This is in Deuteronomy 23. And this is about uh, those that are excluded or possibly allowed to enter the assembly of Yahweh. And so um, we've really done a bad job with this one um, because there's sort of a uh, symbolic use of the Ammonites and the Moabites to represent excluded others, and a symbolic use of the Egyptians and the Edomites to represent potentially included others. There's some irony going on here, but one of the things that makes sense about choosing those two to represent excluded and included 
is um, in the end of uh, Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah says, what, Judah thinks that it's circumcised and that's going to work? No, they're uncircumcised, just like, and also lists, uh, Egypt, Edom, Ammon, Moab, because these four nations are among those that practice non-covenantal circumcision. And so we know the same thing that the Old Testament authors knew. Circumcision is a physical sign that may or may not correspond to heart circumcision. And so that's why these are the perfect four people groups to choose to represent excluded others versus included others, because it's not just about circumcision. That's the normal sign of uh, conversion. So that would be a surprising text, but that's sort of at the base almost, Jonathan, and people forget this, of Isaiah 56. So when our Lord stands in the court of the Gentiles and says, this is to be a house of prayer for all peoples, you made it into a den of thieves. These texts that the Lord's quoting are deeply interpretive coming out of the Ten Commandments and coming out of the law of the assembly. And so sort of we can have new light shed for us on uh, when we dig deeper, not just digging to Jeremiah 7 and digging to Isaiah 56, but realizing these are already several steps up the rung mm-hmm. of negotiating very difficult texts in the Old Testament. And we, we just go, we start in Matthew or Mark, jump back to Isaiah 56, Jeremiah 7, well, I did my work. Well, these connections go much, much deeper than that. I would like to just go straight to Romans two or Romans four and 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 let that settle the circumcision uncircumcision. But you're you're telling me I can do that within the Old Testament text itself. Yeah, Paul's not saying anything novel. This is this is a long time problem, right? The circumcision of the heart, and so we find this wrestling with who's excluded and who's included. Here's an example: the the ESV and NRSV they take the simile out of. Ezra 9.1. And so it doesn't say, get those Canaanites out of here. It says, get those people that married people that act like Canaanites. But by removing the simile that's in the Hebrew, the ESV is reading against the sense of the text. The NRSV is reading against the sense of the text. That's no wonder we have so many, um, the dominant interpretations of Ezra's work is that he's a racist. Well, we have racially bent English interpretations that have formed the questions that we bring to the Hebrew text. We, we need to stop sometimes and say, this is a simile. The problem is not that they married Canaanites. There are no Canaanites anymore at this time. They've been long gone. Read uh, 1 Kings 9. Um, the issue in Ezra 9 is people are continuing to act like um, those that are outside the assembly of the Lord. They're acting like the Canaanites. Well, there's so much to talk about related to this book, James, and uh, we we made the decision. It was actually a pretty easy decision between the two of us that we wanted to divide this up and have a second episode uh, coming up with with Gary. And so uh, I don't know about you, but this has just whetted my appetite for uh, further conversation. Absolutely. This is the kind of thing where uh, 15 minutes uh, wouldn't be fair uh, to the Herculean effort uh, put into this book. Uh, And so I look forward to continuing our discussion with Gary, but I'm sure that our listeners have already got a sense uh, that this is a book like no other uh, that they may own. uh, And we, we really do hope 
uh, that listeners will go out and pick this up even before part two of our interview is released uh, with Gary. Yes, and we do thank you for listening to Theology on the Go. Uh, We have been given two copies of this book from Zondervan, and so we'll offer a chance for someone to win a copy at the end of this episode, and then at the end of the second episode, if you go to the placefortruth.org and click on the Theology on the Go link, you can enter to win uh, a copy of a book-by-book guide, Old Testament Use of Old Testament by Gary Snicker. Uh, We'd also like to thank you for listening to part one. We hope that it's whetted your appetite for more discussion, and that's what we'll be doing on our next episode is continuing this discussion with uh, Gary and getting into some issues of why this is particularly important for pastors and and some, some more specific details about the work he's done. So thank you for listening to Theology on the Go. Please pass it along to anyone you think might be a help. If you're able to donate to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, you can do that at alliancenet.org or Place for Truth. There's a donate button on both of those sites. And most of all, thanks for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Western Reformed Seminary, now located in Puyallup, Washington, is a Bible-believing Presbyterian seminary endorsed by the Bible Presbyterian Church. Their mission is to prepare church leaders who are spiritually grounded, knowledgeable, capable, and dedicated through solid theological training. Degree programs include the Masters of Divinity, academic degrees such as Masters of Biblical or Theological Studies, as well as the Masters of Church Ministry, with an emphasis in Biblical Counseling, Missions, or Church Ministry. Non-degree students at Western Reform Seminary may take any class as a standalone for credit or audit, although residency classes offer the best learning environment. Western Reform Seminary offers interactive synchronous classes for students unable to attend in person, as well as concentrated classes in January and May every year. The spring semester begins on January 24th. For more information, visit wrs.edu or email registrar at wrs.edu. Western Reformed Seminary.